Well, hey, good morning, and welcome again to our church. If you're new especially, I'd love to welcome you. My name's Andrew. I get to introduce our guest speaker this morning. We're in the middle of our Verse That Changed Everything series, and the idea here is every guest speaker that we have will get to share from one of the verses that has most shaped and impacted their life. And so two weeks ago, Barrett Moore was here speaking on John 3.16. Last week, our own one of our own pastors, Kevin Crosley, was here in Isaiah 61. I'd encourage you, if you missed either of those messages out traveling with your family on vacation, go back and get caught up. They were really powerful messages. And man, this morning's is no different. It was awesome to listen to our guest speaker this morning in first service. And so I'm really excited to introduce to you Dr. David Croto, who is the Dean of Columbia Biblical Seminary. Some of you may remember David. He was actually here last September talking about gospel-centered giving, and it's just great to, to have you back, David. David has an incredible passion for the local church. He's an author, uh, teacher at Columbia Biblical Seminary. Obviously, he also taught at Liberty University where he first met uh, Jenny Bowers, Adam's wife. And so we're, we're just thrilled to, David, to have you back. Would you come and join us on stage, join me on stage? And let's welcome David back to the stage to teach us this morning. Thanks, Andrew. Apparently, I get very thirsty when I preach. No, that's, that's not why that's here. So last year, I came and I, I preached on gospel-driven giving. And this year, I'm speaking on anxiety. So if I get invited back next year, I'll have to preach on what to do when giving makes you anxious, something like that. <laughs> At the age of six, I started throwing up every morning. Some mornings, I was just nauseous and I was able to fight it off. But from the ages of six to about 15, virtually every morning it was a struggle. From when I woke up till around lunchtime. Rather than a pregnancy, which is nine months of morning sickness, mine was nine years of morning sickness. At the age of 15, I was admitted to a psychiatric facility for teenagers, Stanford University Medical Center. And I was in there for about a month as they were trying to figure out what was going on. And eventually they concluded it was anxiety that was driving it. And kind of the issue kind of went away for a couple years and then came back and then went away for a couple years and then came back. And that pattern has persisted throughout my entire life, actually. This last week, I sat down to try to calculate how many times about have I vomited in my life. And the conservative estimate is about 6,000. It's probably closer to 10,000. So the topic of anxiety is very personal for me. It's not just an academic exercise. I'm in that battle every day of my life. Anxiety disorders are the most common mental illness in the United States, affecting about 40 million adults age 18 and over, which is about 20% of the population. 20% of the adults in here have an anxiety disorder. 
less than 40% receive treatment. And when you think about adolescents ages 13 to 18, about 32% are struggling with an anxiety disorder. Now, there are many different types of anxiety disorders like generalized anxiety disorder or social anxiety disorder. Obsessive compulsive disorder is a subset of anxiety disorders and post-traumatic stress disorder. Today, we're going to talk about anxiety. We're going to talk about Philippians 4, what that has to say about anxiety and how modern neuroscience affirms what Paul says and can give us a specific tool in line with what Paul says to treat anxiety. Read with me, Philippians 4, 4 through 9. Always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. Remember, the Lord is coming soon. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting into practice all that you have learned and received from me, everything you heard from me and saw me doing. Then the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Father, you sent your son to die for us, to take away the penalty of sin for those of us who would place our faith in you but you also desire to progressively take away the power of sin in our lives. And I know there are people here right now who are crippled by anxiety. And I pray, God, that you will use the truths from your word to change that and to free them from the bondage that comes with anxiety. In Christ's name we pray, amen. In verse six, Paul says, don't worry about anything. Other translations say, be anxious for nothing. That sounds simple, right? Just stop it. <laughs> well, what is worry? What is anxiety? Anxiety or worry is the idea that there's a negative expectation for the future. The, the Greek word in Philippians 4 means to have an anxious concern based on apprehension about possible danger or misfortune. Notice the emphasis on possible danger or misfortune. Sometimes anxiety is based in reality, but sometimes it's not. For example, if someone is diagnosed with a brutal disease, and as they think about what the rest of their life is going to be, and if this disease is going to kill them, and they think about how painful the rest of their life is going to be, if they have anxiety over that, it's like, well, yeah, I get that. That makes a lot of sense. It's based in reality. But many times our anxiety is not. It's a pessimistic expectation about the future. 
Sometimes we assume that the worst will happen, even though it hasn't happened yet, and might be very unlikely to happen at all. So notice how Paul begins this section in verse 4. He says, Always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. So Philippians truly is an epistle of joy. There are more concentrated uses of the word joy or rejoicing in these four short chapters than any other place in the New Testament. So how does joy or rejoicing relate to anxiety? Rejoicing counters anxiety. When someone is rejoicing, when they're experiencing true joy, they will not be focusing on possible negative expectations for their future. They are in the here, in the now. They are present, focusing on what is real and true, not what might possibly happen in the future. And Paul wants us to always be rejoicing, always be full of joy. Let's look a little closer at the text. Notice that rejoicing generically is not commanded, but rejoicing in the Lord. Now, different people rejoice in different ways. If you're more extroverted, when you're rejoicing, everyone around you might know. If you're more introverted, no one might know that you're rejoicing. Uh, just had a memory going back to when I went to Africa on a mission trip with my wife, and one day we did a safari, and the first time she saw zebras, she had laryngitis, it didn't matter. Her rejoicing broke through the laryngitis, and she went, zebras! And then they all ran, and <laughs> we missed them. So some people are just very extroverted about it. But the controlling issue here in Philippians 4 is not the style of rejoicing, but the ground or reason for rejoicing. Too many times we stare at our circumstances, concentrating on the details of what's happening to us, and it causes anxiety. But we must remember, as scholar D.A. Carson has said, that our circumstances are providentially arranged. If our joy is derived primarily from our circumstances, then when our circumstances change, change, we will be miserable. Our delight must be in the Lord himself. Did you notice the repetition of this idea of rejoicing, this command twice in a row in the same sentence, basically, to rejoice? Spurgeon concluded that Paul repeated himself because he truly understood the difficulty that came with the command to continually be joyful. Paul realizes it's a difficult command. And, and to remind you of some context about Philippians, where is Paul when he writes Philippians? A Roman prison. This isn't a guy sitting in a, in a cushy apartment in like Milan or something. He's in prison when he says, Always be full of joy. Again, I say, rejoice. Now, in verse 6, Paul gives another command. Be anxious for nothing. Don't worry about anything. So rejoice always is contrasted with being anxious for nothing. Now, one of these things, rejoicing, is something we should always be doing. The other thing, anxiety, is something we should always avoid. So how do we avoid being anxious? Well, first, please realize that actually not all forms of anxiety are actually bad. 
If you see a car headed straight for a two-year-old, hopefully you don't go, hmm, interesting. No, anxiety will build really quickly and you'll like yell for the child to get out of the street or you'll run and grab the child and pull it to safety. Anxiety causes that and that's good. God created us to, be, to act that way. So there is a how to avoid anxiety, which we'll talk about in a minute, but there's also a why. And I really wanna hit this why because I've actually encountered people who don't really see what the big deal is and why we need to avoid anxiety. And I'm gonna give you two thoughts on why we should avoid anxiety. One is a physiological reason, and the other is a theological reason. Let's start with the physiological. When we experience anxiety, our body produces cortisol. The amygdala, which is the emotional processing center of the brain, recognizes when a stressful event has occurred. And the amygdala then sends a message to the hypothalamus, which is the command center of the brain. The hypothalamus sends a message to the rest of the body, so it has the energy to fight or to flee. In particular, it sends a message to the adrenal glands, which produces adrenaline or epinephrine. The physiological changes that are produced prepares the body for the challenge it is facing. This sequence is so fast, it can happen before the brain can even fully process what the eyes are seeing. It's so fast. You can't even comprehend the thing before your body already has started preparing you to react to it. Now, one of the, once the initial release of adrenaline starts to fade, a second response to stress is activated. The second system enables the person to continue fighting or fleeing. If the brain decides this is needed, the hypothalamus releases a hormone, which tells the pituitary gland to release a hormone, which causes the adrenal glands to release cortisol. Now, I know that you can probably follow all of the specific things, and that's not really important. I just want you to understand that God has created us in a certain way. And, and the, the end result to a stressful situation is the production of cortisol. Cortisol has been nicknamed the fight or flight hormone. Actually, it can cause fight, flight, fright, flag, or faint. Try saying that real fast. God created us to produce cortisol when a life-threatening situation occurs so we can react to it quickly. But if we are trained to have anxiety in everyday situations, a traffic jam, problems at work, problems at home, producing this hormone can cause serious, serious problems. The, rep the repeated activation of cortisol has a brutal impact on the body. I mean, just think about what my body physically has been through. According to Harvard Health Publishing, research suggests that chronic stress contributes to high blood pressure, promotes the formation of artery clogging deposits, and causes brain changes they may contribute to even more anxiety, depression, and addiction. In fact, Cortisol can prevent you from learning. So if you're stressed out right now, you might have to watch this later on. 
okay, can prevent you from learning and actually causes brain damage. Other research has suggested that chronic production of cortisol can lead to obesity. So these are some of the health reasons for avoiding anxiety. But Spurgeon's going to kick off our thought on the theological reason to avoid anxiety. He says, it will be for your own advantage, and it will be for God's glory for you to shake off the anxieties which else might overshadow your spirit. Several years ago, an author named Jerry Bridges published a book called Respectable Sins. Respectable Sins. Uh, kind of a tongue-in-cheek type title, right? That really, there are no respectable or acceptable sins in a Christian's life. Not that we don't sin, we do. It's just we, we shouldn't be respecting them or accept them. Chapter nine of his book is on anxiety. And his, and his point is that we, we live in a culture, even a Christian culture in this country that seems to just accept that anxiety is okay. Anxiety can be sinful. That's the theological reason to avoid it. I didn't say it always is, but it can be sinful. Now, we want to be careful to distinguish between consciously being anxious about something because of a lack of faith and a physiological manifestation of anxiety. Just because your body's been trained to respond to stressful situations in a certain way does not mean you are actively living in unbelief. And the technique that we'll talk about today can actually reprogram your body's response to cortisol. So now that we have the why, bad for our health, and it can be sin, what about the how? How do we avoid being anxious? Well, it's a little bit more than just saying stop it, isn't it? Paul gives two prescriptions for dealing with anxiety. The first, in verse 6, is turn your cares into prayers. He says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Well, I mentioned earlier different types of anxiety disorders. I want to give you two kind of catch-all categories for anxiety. Conscious and subconscious. Many times, people who are anxious can very easily tell you why they're anxious. When people come to me who are struggling with anxiety, they might say, well, I don't really know why I'm anxious. I just feel anxious. And I'll, I'll start asking them questions. So I'll say, okay, well, what, what's happened in the last year? I'm thinking of one person in particular who said, well, yeah, not much has happened. You know, I graduated from college. I said, okay. He goes, then I got married. I'm like, okay. And then we, we moved to go to grad school. Okay. And my wife's pregnant and I got a new job and we're looking for a new church. And then he finishes the list, and I'm like, that's a lot for 12 months. And he's like, yeah, that's just normal stuff from, from life. I go, right. Those are all normal things. But when you push them and compact them into 12 months, your body is freaking out. It's too much in a short period of time. So sometimes they know, but they won't acknowledge, or they'll dismiss, or they'll downplay. That's the So-and-so has done the same thing, and they're fine. Are they fine? Do we really know if they're fine? We just think they're fine. So Paul says to pray about everything. As one scholar put it, prayerful people are peaceful people. In fact, Paul uses three different words for prayer in this verse. The first one for prayer 
is kind of the generic word for prayer, and it refers to just speaking to God. The second one, tell God what you need, refers to making an urgent request, a supplication, or a plea. And the third, thank him, refers to expressing gratitude or thanksgiving. So when we know what is causing our anxiousness, Paul commands us to go to God with our anxieties. It's very similar to what Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 7, give all your worries and cares to God for he cares about you. You might be thinking, great, he flew all the way to St. Louis to tell us to pray. Not exactly. We live in a day where people try to be, try very hard to be self-sufficient. I don't need anything from anyone. I can take care of it myself. And then sometimes this attitude ends up impacting how we approach or don't approach God. If you're confident that you're going to have your daily bread tomorrow, you'll be less urgent in praying that you get your daily bread tomorrow. When we get sick, many of us never pray, even prayed for God to heal us. We just go to the doctor, take our medicine. And the same thing applies sometimes to our anxiety. We might try to solve the problem of the thing that's making us anxious or the cause of the anxiety. We try to solve it ourselves without ever trusting the God of the universe, the creator of everything, the ultimate sovereign one who has put you in that circumstance. Notice how Paul ended verse five. The New Living Translation says, the Lord is coming soon. Now that particular interpretation that we see embedded in the New Living Translation is one way of understanding the phrase. However, rather than being a reference to the second coming, which is very possible, I actually lean toward another interpretation, that the Lord is relationally near. He is present. He is near spatially. This recognition of the Lord's nearness reminds us that it isn't our circumstances, but the reality of God's presence that determines the joy we feel. Just think about Daniel in the lion's den. How could you feel joy? Well, if you know that God is present, you could. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire, in the furnace. There's another figure there, not named. How could they have joy? Because the Lord is near. He is present, relationally, spatially. He cares for us. He loves us. He sent his son to die on the cross for us. He loved us first. So we need to take our problems, our issues, our anxieties to him. Jesus himself spoke about anxiety in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. And in this section on the Sermon on the Mount, he mentions four of the most common causes for anxiety. Physical attributes, clothing, food and drink, and the future. Jesus himself was very aware of anxiety and its causes. Realize that already in the short time we've been here, we've mentioned that Paul, Peter, and Jesus all discuss anxiety. So this isn't just an issue for 2023. This has been an issue for thousands of years. So prayer can help with conscious anxieties. But what about subconscious anxiety? In other words, 
What if we can't actually isolate what is causing the anxiety? My body was so trained at an early age to react to cortisol by being nauseous that most of the times I have no clue what's causing my anxiety. I have no clue why I'm anxious. So my anxiety is usually subconscious. My body has trained itself to respond to cortisol in a certain way. See, I view anxiety like this. We're all born with a cup, and everyone's cup is a different size. And the size of the cup illustrates how much anxiety we can handle before our cup starts to overflow. When it overflows, that's when the anxiety starts impacting our lives. Could be that we don't sleep, or that we start having uh, physical manifestations of the anxiety, like a migraine or, or nausea. My cup is, is small. I was born with a smaller cup. Now, how are our cup sizes determined? I don't know. But I think it's probably a combination of nature and nurture. Now, the smaller your cup, the more on top of your anxiety you need to be. And the smaller your cup, the more likely you may not be able to identify a particular thing that's making you anxious. It could be 20 small things that are causing your anxiety to impact your life. So we, we look at this, this cup right here, styrofoam cup, and it's, it's smaller than the glass, holds less water, and this is me. I have a smaller cup. And that's kind of the, the nature stuff. But then stuff happens in your life. Trauma starts impacting you. You are emotionally abused or physically abused or abused in another way. You have things that happen to you that cause your cup to get smaller and smaller and smaller. So that when anxieties start occurring in your life, it doesn't take too long before they start overflowing and impacting you. Other people are born with a bigger cup. I don't complain over my cup size. God created me this way. He put me in the circumstances, so that's my cup. But other people have a lot more room for anxiety in their life. Maybe they didn't have the trauma, or maybe they were just built stronger. So as we, as we think through anxiety and how it impacts us, you might be someone who's very sensitive to it. You might have a friend, a brother, a sister who is not, and God created them differently. So then how do you pray for the thing that's causing you anxiety when you don't even know what's causing the anxiety? Well, first, you can ask God to reveal to you what's causing you to be anxious, and he might reveal it to you. Look, I've been in and out of therapy for anxiety for over 30 years. Most of the time, I had no idea what was causing the anxiety. Sometimes we'd figure it out, but there was this one time where I went to see this therapist, and I had had some pretty crazy things happen in, leading up to this, where I was in a house that uh, the, the termite damage had been covered up, and the, to fix it was actually more costly than the house cost, and it was condemned, and we were homeless for like 14 weeks, and I go to this therapist, and he goes, well, you have a lack of faith. You don't trust God. I said, okay, how so? He goes, well, you're anxious, so therefore you don't trust God. 
I go, well, how am I not trusting God? Like, walk me through the steps of where my, my faith is lacking. He goes, well, I don't know. I just know that if you have anxiety, you must not trust God. That was not helpful. Possibly spiritually abusive, okay? Didn't, didn't do a thing for me. My, my issue was not a lack of trust. My issue was my body was programmed in stressful situations to react a certain way, whether or not I trusted God or not. Second, one ministry of the Holy Spirit is that of a, a translator, someone who takes our groanings and expresses them to God for us. Romans 8.26 says, and the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. Even when you don't know what's going on, when you don't know what's causing your anxiety, you can still bring your cares to God because he cares for you so much. Now, what is the expected result of bringing our anxieties to God? Paul says in verse seven, then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. We have access to this supernatural peace, this divine protection. Yet some of us would rather talk to our friends or take a pill to deal with our issues. And I'm not criticizing people who are on medications for mental illness. I've been on at least four different medications for anxiety. There's nothing shameful about that, nothing wrong with that. But if that's what you use instead of trying to lean upon God, that's being self-sufficient. Peace is not just the antithesis to anxiety. Peace is the solution. One scholar has said, God's peace is like the miracle cleanser that when sprayed on dirt, just soaks it up and takes it away. Then Paul probably has in mind the Hebraic sense of shalom, which means well-being. And this communicates, shalom communicates more of a holistic view of peace throughout all the areas of one's life, not just one or two specific areas. Now, the typical way that people deal with anxiety is actually counterproductive. The typical person struggling with anxiety will go to their friend or their spouse or their therapist and want to talk in depth for a long time on the thing that's causing their anxiety. But the more that we talk about the thing that's causing anxiety, the more we are thinking about it. And the more that we're thinking about it, the more it gets deeply embedded into our minds and we start training ourselves to produce cortisol. So Paul also gives a second way to avoid anxiety. Adjust your thinking. Adjust your thinking. Realize that Paul doesn't say, talk to your friends about it. In verse 8, it appears that there might be, Paul might be transitioning to a new section according to many translations. The phrase, one final thing, or finally, could easily be understood as kind of Paul turning the page to deal with a new topic. But the Greek phrase that's translated finally can also be translated therefore, as it does in a few other places in Paul's writings. 
So I would argue that this is kind of like the climax, the conclusion to him talking about anxiety. And the key to it, I think, is in the context itself. First, Paul mentions the peace of God in verses 7, and he also mentions the peace of God in verse 9, which connects these two sections together. Second, the concept in verse 8 of fix your thoughts on something is a great contrast to what happens with anxiety because anxiety is fixing wrong thoughts on something and Paul is now telling them to redirect or refocus their thinking. And Paul lists eight things that we should be thinking on to redirect our thoughts away from our anxious thinking. All right, I want everyone here, you can leave your eyes open. Some of you might want to close your eyes, but I want you to think about something. I'm going to tell you what to think about. I want you to visualize in your mind an elephant. Think about an elephant. You got the elephant, an elephant in your mind? All right. Now stop thinking about the elephant. Don't think about the elephant. Stop thinking about the elephant. No elephant, no elephant, no elephant, no elephant. We were talking about an elephant, so you were able to stop thinking about it, right? Most of you probably couldn't stop thinking about it. Why? Because I kept saying, stop thinking about the elephant, which makes you think about an elephant. Some of you might have been successful in not thinking about the elephant. And if you were, my guess is either you have a stronger mind than me or you replace the thought of an elephant with like a dog or a pony or a horse or something like that. You replaced it with something else. This is kind of what Paul is suggesting here. But there's also a basis for this in neuroscience. So a few minutes ago, I talked about cortisol. What if there was a way to stop cortisol production? What if we could cause our bodies to produce something to counter the cortisol? Well, God has created us in such a fascinating way that we can. And we don't need medicine to do it. Here's how it works. You need to find a very, very powerful memory. A memory that is so powerful that when you think about it, you either cry or it brings you to the verge of tears, like good tears, happy crying. It could be the day you met your spouse or the day you you realized you were in love with them. It could be uh, your wedding day or your honeymoon. It could be a, a great vacation you had. I saw the pictures on Facebook yesterday of, uh, of Jenny Bowers at Mount Rainier and, and that wonderful vacation that they're having up there and the great scenery. It could be reflecting upon a great vacation. It could be a great accomplishment at work, birth of a child. It could be the day you got saved. It could be a, a relationship with a mentor, your parents, maybe a relationship with a grandparent. There are endless possibilities what that powerful memory could be. One way to process through this, to find that memory, is Paul's list. What is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, admirable. There's anything excellent, anything worthy of praise. Fix your thoughts on these things. So you might want to go through that list and think, are there memories that are connected to these words that Paul's using that's powerful for you? Think carefully, slowly through the list to see if any powerful memories come to mind. See, when you remember something powerful, really, really strong memory, your brain produces oxytocin. Oxytocin is a hormone 
that is released at certain times in your life, just naturally. Uh, some have referred to it as the love hormone. So when a woman gives birth, that is the highest level of oxytocin she will ever have in her life. She'll also have high levels when she's nursing. But if you think through the, the birthing thing, it's, it's incredible the way God's created us as we study the mind and study the body and the way everything connects. Like, you know, I've, I've never given birth, in case you're, you're curious about that, but I've talked to people who have, and it's painful. It's a very, very painful thing to go through, especially if you're doing like the natural thing, right? Brutally painful. And then God's created women, so as soon as it's done, this hormone's released that causes them to love that, that little thing that just caused them such excruciating pain. That's what the hormone does. But the interesting thing about oxytocin is that it's also connected to mental health. The chief medical editor for Harvard Health Publishing, Dr. Howard Lewine, published an article last month and said, quote, oxytocin has been shown to decrease stress and anxiety levels. See, oxytocin can be released in many different situations, like high-intensity workouts, music, physical touch. So how does any of this relate to anxiety in Philippians 4? We can cause our brains to produce oxytocin by thinking about an event or moment in our lives that is powerful. I have several memories that I use when I, I sense anxiety in my life or anxiousness. Here's what you do. When you're feeling anxious, whether it's conscious or subconscious, you might know why, you might not know why. You might just sense whatever it is your body goes through when anxiety is present. But when you're feeling anxious, you need to stop what you're doing, sit down, and think about the powerful memory. And you need to lean into the memory. Um, you know, some people are more in touch with their emotions. Generally speaking, guys, not as much. And so I had to practice this. And I had to practice like feeling all the feelings that were connected to that, that event, to that memory. Like allowing yourself to really feel the emotions. Not just a little taste, but imbibe the emotions. When oxytocin is released, cortisol goes away. It's, it's like oxytocin is light and cortisol is darkness. If the lights were all off here, and it was dark in here, and then we turned the lights on, there's a battle that takes place between light and darkness. And who wins? Light. How often? Every time. Imagine how freaked out you'd be if you go home, you turn the lights on, and nothing happens, right? You see the light bulb that's on, but there's still darkness everywhere. It never happens, because light always beats darkness. Oxytocin always beats cortisol. And if you found a powerful enough memory that it causes you to cry, there's actually cortisol in your tears. It's a way of flushing cortisol out of your system. Now, here are two mistakes that people can make when trying this technique. I discovered this because these were the mistakes that I made. First, when you realize that you're anxious, if you wait too long, too much cortisol is already gonna be in your system. 
If you've struggled as long as I have with anxiety, you've trained yourself in different techniques to, to deal with the anxiety. You might be tempted to lean upon those techniques. Don't. Don't lean on those techniques. If you wait too long and then try this oxytocin-producing memory technique, it could be too late. It won't be as effective. So don't wait. Start right away as soon as you feel the symptoms coming on. For example, one technique, you ever heard of anxious eating? If you've ever wondered why people eat when they're anxious, I'm about to solve that dilemma for you right now. Because when you eat a comfort food, like I'm not sure if you've heard that expression before. My wife taught me about comfort food. Her comfort food is rice, not my comfort food. Like, I like a good steak, but I really, like, when I'm anxious, I like, like, potato chips or tortilla chips, and I'll eat those, like, a lot of them. You know why? Because when you eat comfort food, your brain produces oxytocin. Now, of course, there can be some negative side effects to anxious eating. Amen. Some of you knew what I was talking about. So don't, don't wait too long. Jump right in. You gotta stop what you're doing. If you're driving, you pull over. You gotta stop what you're doing and you gotta focus. Second, when you start thinking through the memory, you might notice your symptoms are going away quickly. Then you stop leaning into the memory and then cortisol is quickly produced and the anxiety returns with a vengeance. So you need to take your time and think through the memory. Feel as deeply as you can. Go through it over and over again until you are confident that the anxiety is totally gone. It takes time and it takes practice. This didn't happen for me in a week. It was closer to six or seven months before I started seeing a change. And I have a hard time visualizing memories. Uh, I can do it, it works. But I found for myself a more effective way. My wife likes to joke that when I dream, I dream in black and white and I never use adjectives or anything. So visualization can be tricky for me. But I have, I have some videos. I have some videos of powerful memories that I can use. And I put them in a special folder on my phone. And my phone's in my pocket. So I ever start feeling anxious, I take my phone out and I watch the video. Now, I have some, some great memories with my wife. I remember going to Maui with her and that was glorious. This last December, our 25th anniversary, we went to Cancun, greatest vacation of my life. Wonderful memories, but I had to visualize. That's, that's a lot of work for me. So I have these three videos. I'll, I'll tell you in detail about one. And I, I mentioned this last year when I was here, but this is the main video, main memory that I use to produce oxytocin. And it's a, it's a, it's a, a memory of my son. So my son was a sophomore in high school. He was on the wrestling team and he went to the state championship for wrestling and he made it to the finals. Sophomore in high school, finals for state wrestling. He hadn't lost the entire season and he's wrestling this kid. And honestly, I think he was better than that kid, but the kid won by one point. Like it was a tragic ending. My son, if he breaks free from this last hold, they tie up and go to overtime. He's literally hanging on to my son's ankle. He's dragging him across the mat and time ran out. If he had just been able to jerk the foot away, that had gone to sudden death overtime. Devastating loss. He was not in a good place mentally, emotionally, in any way when that was done. The next year, his junior, that wasn't a good memory. <laughs> in case you got lost there for a second. The next year, he was also in the finals. 
And this time he was wrestling a kid who was, I think, had better moves than he had, was a little faster than him. I think my son DJ was stronger, but the other kid, it was, it was a tough match. They're going back and forth and back and forth. And uh, my son DJ, he, he tried to like, like flip him over and the guy caught him mid-flip and landed right on top of DJ. And it was like so close, within a point of each other. I thought it was over at that point. And I've watched this video like a thousand times. And I don't understand what happened next. Somehow he was able to lift that kid, throw him off while he like somehow came off the mat, got on top of the kid, squeezed, 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 and pinned him. And if you, if you watch that video and the sound was on, you would hear my voice screaming like a madman. See, my son was in a dark place. And, and part of me truly believes that, that that moment when he pinned that kid and he gets on his knees and he puts his hands on his head like he couldn't even believe what just happened. Might have saved his life. So it's not about winning a match, but it's about my son being alive. That's what that memory does for me. And I can't think about it without crying. I can't. The more I think about it, the more I cry. It doesn't, like, the more you use this technique, the stronger it gets, not the weaker. That's why it might take months of doing this. Now, I will tell you about the other uh, memories. Uh, the, the, the second one that I'll use is the next year when, the, when he was the, the captain of the wrestling team and they won the state championship as a team. And the match that took place was so epic at the end. These two huge heavyweight guys and, I mean, it was a Disney movie. It's truly a Disney moving ending. Again, he made a move that just, just defies gravity and laws of logic and everything. That's the second one. The, the third one I probably shouldn't mention, but I will. Some of you are going to get up and you're going to walk out. I'm okay with that. It won't make me anxious if you get up and walk out. But my third memory goes back to 2004 when my Red Sox were down 3 nothing to the Yankees. Go ahead, laugh at me. It's all right. I can take it. And they came back. When I watch Dave Roberts steal second base, I cry every time. When I see Bill Miller hit that line drive up the middle that Mariano Rivera tried to stop with his foot but failed and the run scored to tie it, I cry. When David Ortiz hits the home run in extra innings, I cry. Now, I'm not going to talk about the World Series and the team that the Red Sox beat in the World Series. I realize my location. Not saying... Just saying, like, it's a powerful memory. And you can, you can make, my, my wife makes fun of me. I have friends that make fun of me because that's one of my memories. But my grandfather went, never saw the Red Sox win a World Series. 86 years of drought. You St. Louis people don't get that, okay? You've had good sports teams. The 86 years. I felt all 86 years of that struggle. I'm not 86, in case some of you probably think I might be. I'm not 86. I felt all 86 years in 2004. And so these are, my, these are powerful memories for me. Almost every time that I have preached in my life, I get nauseous right before it's time to preach. Like very, very, very nauseous. Last year when I came here to preach, it was the first time I had the opportunity to try this technique before the sermon. So as the worship music is kind of winding down, they're kind of finishing that third song, you kind of feel it's coming to an end. 
boom, every time it hits, every time. I'm sitting right there in that front row. I pulled out my phone and I silenced the volume very carefully to make sure no one could hear because I'm screaming in the video. And I watched a video of my son winning the state wrestling championship. You all are standing and you're singing and I'm sitting down there and tears are rolling down my face and you're probably looking over going, oh, he's meditating upon his sermon, what a spiritual person he is, and I'm watching a sporting event, okay? That was the first time I can remember feeling at ease walking up here to preach a sermon, ever. It, like, the nausea just melted away. Now, what I'm trying to do See, it's so easy to lean upon your old habits in life. You know, anxious eating, whatever techniques you might use. So what I'm trying to train myself to do now, this is a journey for me. Okay? It's not like I'm never struggle with anxiety. Don't hear that. It's a process. So I'm trying to train myself before I even feel the anxiety. If I think I might be entering a situation that could be cause anxiety, I'll watch the video. So as we were worshiping just now, I, had, I felt nothing. I didn't feel any nausea. I didn't feel anxious. I was relaxed. I was worshiping. I said, you know what? Let me sit down and go ahead and watch that video again. And I did. And I started to cry again. And I had no problems. That's not why the bull is here. But this didn't happen the first time I tried the technique. I had to practice it over and over again to figure out how it would work for me, what memories were powerful enough. And eventually, I think my body just realized that it was going to lose this fight every time. It's like I was reprogramming when cortisol is released, don't get nauseous. And eventually, throughout this last year, my body has, has realized that. Doesn't mean I don't, I don't get symptoms ever, I do. But now I have a technique to counter the anxiety, to counter the nausea. Now I have recited Philippians 4, 4 through 9 thousands of times over the last 20 years, thousands. And I, and I recited to, I was reciting it to try to counter my anxiety. You know what? It never worked. See, I memorized the passage and I recited it like a magical charm. I, I was, what I was doing is more in line with Harry Potter theology than scripture. Expelliarmus, right? And it kind of takes the weapon out of the other person's hand. I would just recite the verse and expect my anxiety to melt away. That's not how scripture works. Instead, we need to read the passage, understand what it means, and here's the key, and apply it to our lives. Reciting it and not applying it, it doesn't do a thing. We need to live out the truths of scripture, and it literally took me decades to realize that. I mentioned at the beginning of this message that at 15 years old, I was admitted to a psychiatric hospital for anxiety. For over 30 years, I saw psychiatrists, psychologists, counselors, some Christians, some not, and none of them ever gave me a tool or a technique to deal with anxiety. We would talk about anxiety. We talk about things that could be making me anxious, but never a tool. Sometimes people will give you like breathing techniques to try to calm you down. What they're trying to do is they're trying to slow down the production of cortisol. What, what the tool I'm giving you is it gets rid of the cortisol, not just slows it down, but gets rid of it. And in January of 2022, I was, I was given a tool finally, this tool. 
and I made the connection to Philippians 4 instantly. So a shout out to Larry Peacock for his help in teaching me these things. All right, back in Philippians. The two verbs that are key here are in verse 8, fix your thoughts, and then verse 9, keep putting into practice. One scholar said, by using these two verbs, Paul combined the mental and ethical concerns of his Jewish background with Christian thought. For him, knowledge always led to responsible Christian living. So to correct our thoughts is one thing, but to live a godly life is the next step. See, when we live outside of the will of God, those of us who are truly born again and have the indwelling Holy Spirit, we will feel anxious. Disobedience to God will make a Christian feel anxious. So Paul reminds the Philippians to continually practice living their lives in accordance with what he taught them and how they saw him live. And he concludes, the God of peace will be with you. Paul is calling for followers of Christ to be attentive, reflective, and meditative thinkers. So I urge you, as you inevitably encounter situations that will cause anxiety, read through Philippians 4. Apply it. Think about a powerful memory that can stimulate the production of oxytocin. Anxiety can hinder so many aspects of our lives. It can keep you in shackles, in chains, in bondage, preventing you from experiencing life, ex preventing you from experiencing joy. God might challenge you to do something. Your anxiety might cause you to not want to try that thing that God wants you to do. Maybe it's a mission trip. Maybe he's calling you into ministry and you're like, yeah, that, that just causes too much anxiety. Use these insights from Philippians 4 and neuroscience to shake off the shackles of anxiety and bring glory to God with your life. Jesus didn't die on the cross just to remove the penalty of sin, but also to remove the power of sin. Don't live in anxiety. Be free. Be free. Be set free from this condition Today, remember, the Lord is near. In all your circumstances, he's near. So take time to think through what powerful memory God can, has given you in your life that will help you produce oxytocin, drive out the cortisol, and stop struggling with anxiety. Father, you know, you know what's causing our anxieties. You know, because you created all the circumstances, all the situations, you created us in a very specific way. And I pray, God, that over the next couple of days, that the people in here who are struggling with anxiety will take time to reflect upon a powerful memory that you've given them in their life to adjust their thinking. Help them, Lord. Help us all, Lord, as we have anxieties in our lives to rejoice in you.
not focus on our circumstances, which are always changing, but focus on the God who never changes. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you join me in thanking Dr. Cotto? Thank you so much.